and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm sitting here with Sarah, and we're here today with Kate Forsyth. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're here today for your new novel, The Blue Rose, which is, uh, you're, you're dipping your toes into the French Revolution. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, The Blue Rose um, is, uh, it's, I suppose it's a love story, but it's a great epic love story with star-crossed lovers who are torn apart by cruel circumstance. My protagonist is called Viviane, and she's the daughter of a French marquis who has lived all of her life in um, a chateau in Brittany. Her life is actually very lonely because her father lives in, in Versailles. He's a courtier for King Louis XVI. Um, and so you know, Viviane is hates the court, and she hates her father, and she she's you know wants to keep living in Brittany. Into her life comes a young Welsh gardener whose name is David, and um, he's been hired to build um, a, a magnificent garden at the chateau to celebrate the Marquis's marriage to a young a young woman. Um, and of course, Viviane and David are drawn together by their love of um, of gardens, of plants, of nature, um, their love of books, their love of ideas. Um, but it's an impossible love. Um, and so I like to say that um, you know their love was impossible in the world in which they lived, but the world was changing because, of course, they have to live through the incredible cataclysmic events of the French Revolution. Um, and so this, you know, the, the book follows their adventures as they fight for freedom and they fight for their right to love whom, whom they please. Ever since reading this book, I've been, all I want to read about is the French Revolution now. <laughs> I'm so stuck in this. Like, it's all I want to watch on TV. It's all I want. Um, you must have had the most amazing time researching all of this. I absolutely did. Um, I've actually always been fascinated by the French Revolution ever since I read The Scarlet Pimpernel when I was a teenager. And um, my grandmother had all of The Scarlet Pimpernel books. So I kind of read them back to back one kind of summer holiday. And then my mother said to me, oh, if you're loving the French Revolution so much, you must read Tale of Two Cities, which was my first book by Charles Dickens, who is now, you know, I love I love Dickens. And A Tale of Two Cities is still my favourite book by him. So I went through exactly the same thing when I was a teenager where all I wanted to do was read about the French Revolution and I actually read everything I could find, you know, you know everything that I could put my hands on, including non-fiction, you know, biographies of Marie Antoinette and things like that. So I actually knew a lot about the French Revolution before I began to write this book. But about a third of the book is actually set in China or on, um, you know, my my hero, uh, my Welsh gardener, David, um, flees France and then he travels on a great ship all the way across the equator to China, which was at that time ruled by the emperor. And it was an extremely rigid, secretive um, uh, dangerous kind of time in China. The the emperor had absolute power. And so I knew nothing about China. And that to me was such a huge discovery for me. And I am now, of course, completely fascinated by Chinese history and culture because I learned so much and I felt incredibly privileged to be able to, you know, write this book about this fascinating period of history. 
Um, one thing that blew my mind in this book is the knowledge that it that red roses a came from China and came so late to Europe from China. Mm. Can you tell, can you explain a bit about that because I couldn't believe it. I know you always assume that like the red rose is like the Tudor symbol. Yeah, I suppose. exactly. You know, I mean, I must admit that that was. I mean, that was the first seed for me in writing this book. Um, I was I was writing a. I was reading a book about the history of the rose and I read this one paragraph which basically said in 1789 uh, English nurseryman Gilbert Slater um, introduced the first blood red rose into Western culture um, and uh, it was a, a a rose that bloomed more than once and in China it was called the Yuhu Monthly um, and Two things struck me straight away. My first thing was, hang on, surely the first red rose was not introduced to Europe in 1789. What about all those pictures of red roses? What about, you know, the War of the Roses, you know, the Yorks Mm. and the Lancasters? What about all those paintings I've seen? And then my second thought was, 1789, that is right at the beginning of the French Revolution. In fact, that was the year that the Princess de Lamballe was murdered and her head stuck on a pike and paraded in front of the windows of the, of the king and queen in Paris. And so I had these two thoughts almost sim- um, simultaneously. And the first one aroused my curiosity. I had to go in search. So I went back to all of my other books about roses and I went to the internet and I... I, I realised that it was actually true. There were crimson roses in Europe before then, by which we mean a dark red pink, but there were no true blood red roses. And this just, like you say, just blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what I discovered is that for many, many, many centuries, roses were simply descri- described as being rose-coloured, rosa, which meant pink. There was no word for pink. The word pink, it seems impossible, doesn't it? The word pink was actually invented in the 17th century and it comes from flowers that had a frilled, serrated edge to it. So the, the, the petal looked like it had been cut out with pinking shears. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it's it? It's so amazing. That's very cool. Yeah. And it's little, it's little, you know, it's little details that, like that that are just gems in this rich story because Mm. it's amazing with any historical fiction I guess this is true it's amazing to be caught up in a story and learn all these things that you never knew before another I mean this is I should have known this and if I'd applied logic to my brain I would have figured it out but I guess I didn't realize the lag between everything that was going down in France and the rest of the world finding out because reading the book, you know, I'm eating my heart out. I want David to realise what's going mm. on and he has no idea. And I don't know, I guess <laughs> obviously there was no internet. but like <laughs> There was no telegrams either, darling. <laughs> there was no radio waves. There was, there was nothing. No, I mean, but, um, so when I was reading the, the diary, so um, David's journey to China, he travels with the English embassy that set out to you know, visit the Chinese emperor in his imperial court and persuade him to open up trade with Britain. Um, At that time, Britain was importing hundreds and thousands of crates of tea and this gave them a really, really bad, you know, 
foreign trade deficit. And so they wanted China to import things from England. Now, <laughs> what I didn't realise, I've actually read all of the, of the diaries and memoirs of the people who travelled on that um, on that embassy, and they didn't know about the French Revolution until, I mean, they actually sailed into a harbour at Tenerife and they saw a ship flying the tricolour, the red, blue and white flag of, of the revolution. And they'd never seen it before. They had no idea. And they didn't hear about the, the um, execution of the king until letters arrived almost a year after it actually happened. Now, this, of course, was a wonderful gift for me as a novelist, <laughs> because if, that, if the internet had been around, David would have known that Viviane was in danger and he would have rushed back to her side a year earlier. But luckily for me, he didn't know. And she, of course, didn't know what was happening to him. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Yeah. And um, I'm just reading in your author's note that David is actually based on a real person. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so when I'm, I'm writing a book, all sorts of strange coincidences happen to, um, to feed into the book. So my initial plan, um, I always knew I was writing about uh, a Marquise's daughter who was in love with a gardener because um, I was drawing upon this Chinese um, folktale called The Blue Rose, in which that's the key part of the story. Um, however, you know, I didn't know what kind of nationality he was going to be. He had to be British because he had to go on, the, on this embassy um, trip to China. But um, a year or two into writing the book, I was travelling through Wales and um, my, car, my hire car ran out of petrol, so I pulled into this tiny little Welsh village, which is called Fleur de Lis. And um, I was so enchanted by and curious about this name because all the other villagers in Wales had absolutely <laughs> incomprehensible, unpronounceable Welsh names. <laughs> so I asked the man in the petrol uh, station, I said, why is this village called Fleur de Lis? And he told me it was because it had been settled by French refugees um, you know, during the 17th century who'd been fleeing persecution because they were Huguenots, they were Protestants. And so I filed this away and then when I was coming up with my character, I thought, well, I'll make him Welsh because he, he's, he's got you know, French ancestry, that's why he can speak French. And I called him David because David is my favourite Welsh name. <laughs> and then when I was researching, when I was researching the embassy from Britain to China, it had two gardeners. One was called James and one was called David. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, I thought, oh, my gosh, this was meant to be. And so David Stronach is, was actually the name of one of the gardeners that travelled with the British Embassy to China. Wow. I know. It's amazing. It just felt right mm. to me. That's I love yeah. hearing stories like that. It makes me feel like you tapped into some collective conscience before, before you found out. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm writing a book, it's as if the it's as if the story knows itself, and I just have to be patient as the story slowly reveals itself to me. And in actual fact, it's almost as if the whole universe bends itself around me and my needs in the book. I'm constantly making extraordinary serendipitous discoveries that are crucial in me discovering my story. So th this gives me a great deal of faith. I've mm -hmm. learned to just trust myself 
and my story and know that any problems that I have will in time be solved. The answer will come to me. I just have to be open and receptive to listening for that answer. I have. Yeah. <laughs> this is bad because we've reached the point where I now want to ask questions that I realise are spoilery. Please don't. I haven't I, finished. So <laughs> yeah. I can't. We'll, we'll save that for after the, after the podcast. <laughs> How's this non-spoilery question? What was the biggest challenge you faced writing the Blue Rose? Um, I, I suppose the biggest challenge in writing historical fiction is always to show what's happening in the world at that time, to teach my readers the history that they need to know to understand the world without them realising that I'm teaching them. There's a trick, or not a trick, there's a skill in unspooling the historical uh, facts in such a way that the reader absorbs them without feeling like they're in a history class. And it's you, it has to be done quite delicately and quite lightly um, I don't ever want anyone to feel that they have to skip a bit because it's too boring. <laughs> you know, how much to reveal and how much to keep hidden, how much to assume knowledge and how much to assume ignorance. It's all a little bit of a delicate balancing act. And um, generally in my first couple of drafts, I put in too much history to make sure that I know it and to make sure that everything's in the right place at the right time, and then I cut it all out later. But that, to me, is the great challenge, is how, how much to teach my readers and how to do so in such a way that they do not know that they are being taught. Do you I think, think you do it so well, yeah. Yeah, because you, <laughs> you, you. do. It's, it's seamless. Do you think... Listening to you talk, I just wondered whether um, having written fantasy and having to get world building across like subtly, is it a similar skill or do you, do you think one... Well, absolutely. World building is crucial in all genres of fiction mm. um, and, um, and world building, um, I, when I try and teach people how to do it, I say to them, absolutely everything has to be filtered through the consciousness of your characters. And so if you were writing contemporary fiction, you would not say, you know, Philip hailed a cab, uh, you know, which is <laughs> in New York is uh, a four-wheeled vehicle, usually yellow in colour, in which one pays the cab driver for transporting you from point A to point B. Riveting. <laughs> you just don't do that because your audience knows what a cab is. But when you're writing a book set in Victorian time and they hail a cab, it's a handsome cab pulled by a horse that's blinkered and which has a heavy yoke on it. And the coachman, you know, the cab driver sits outside in all weathers. So you can't say that. <laughs> you, you need to show it. You need to do so very subtly so that the, you know, you might, for example, describe the horse snorting steam into the into the wintry air. You might describe the horse's uh, hooves clopping on the cobblestones. You might describe the cab driver as being a hunched figure against the fog with his collar turned up and his top, you know, his hat on at an angle. You show it, you don't tell it. And that is the secret to making it the, the world 
that you were writing about come to life. It doesn't matter if you're writing a book set long, long ago or in another world or in a different culture to your own. The trick is to make it come vividly to life but in such a way that the reader is seeing it and hearing it and smelling it, not being told what to see and hear and smell. I think I sometimes feel that um, the show don't tell advice. Some people do take it too far, but it's a bit unfairly maligned, I think. And you've just perfectly explained but, but just see, why it's so necessary. Telling is an absolutely crucial tool in storytelling. Mm. If you show everything, if you show everything, your book will be enormously long and enormously boring. <laughs> so you choose what to show and what to tell. And telling is, I mean, for example, you can cover uh, 20 years in a single line by telling. If you showed those 20 years, it would take forever and it would, it's not crucial to the storytelling. So the art is to, to know when to show and when to tell. And if you tell, you tell as swiftly and as acutely as possible. Oh, it's amazing listening to you talking mm, about storytelling. <laughs> it makes me want to go home and start writing something. And I have no, <laughs> I have no pretensions to writing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we are slowly running out of time, but um, we just have a couple of quick fire questions. Sure. So, first up, what is the last book that you read and adored? Um, Uprooted by Naomi Novik. <gasps> oh, that's a firm favourite with us. Oh we my all love gosh, that. I adored it. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so good to know. Um, Secondly, where do you write and at what time of day? So I usually write in my study, which is at home. I have um, a room of my own. It's painted pale green. It's lined with books and art. And my my, um, desk looks out a big picture window across my garden to the ocean. I write all day, every day. I sometimes on the weekend will only write half a day. Um, but, you know, writing is like breathing to me. I do it every single day. Um, I also write in bed every morning in my diary. I've kept a diary since I was 11 years old. And so it's part of my credit practice to every morning I have a cup of tea and I write in my diary. I can, however, write anywhere, hotel rooms, trains, cars, in boats, (laughs) (laughs) on a goat, in a tree. (laughs) Out at sea. <laughs> oh, those oh, are some great visuals. Oh, they really are. <laughs> so do you have any neat tricks to keep yourself going? Do you have word count quotas, writing exercises or anything like that? Um, it, it depends where I am in, in the novel because there are different types of writing. In an early stage of, of a, a novel, I'm really just daydreaming and thinking and planning um, and it's just – you know, I love that process, so I just do it quite happily. When I'm getting towards the end of a book, um, I do set myself writing challenges and writing sprints um, to keep myself going when I'm tired and also to get into a state of flow. Um, I find when I'm writing in flow, I can write um, swiftly and effortlessly for hours and hours and hours. While if I'm not in flow, it's like, you know, digging teeth out of my <laughs> out of my jaw. So writing in flow is much more pleasurable, but sometimes it, it takes a while to get into that state, that otherworldly state. Um, and so... Um, things like writing sprints and challenges are a really good way of sparking that kind of um, fluid writing. Um, I I do like to have 
word counts. Mm. I like to maintain at least 5,000 words a week because I have quite um, strict deadlines. <laughs> um, because I'm a, a career writer, I make my living from my writing. I can't take 20 years to write a novel. And so maintaining at least 5,000 words a week means that I can um, schedule my time more carefully, more efficiently. Basically, my rule is I'm allowed to write more than 5,000 words a week, but I'm not allowed to write less. And so if I have a really great day on a Monday and a Tuesday and I get my 5,000 words done, well, then, you know, the rest of the writing week is... Extra. Extra. <laughs> but if I have having a really rough time, it means I have to cancel all my social engagements and write. And that, of course, is a really good spur to keep you writing. I'm not one of these people that has to write 2,000 words a day because sometimes I work all day and I lose 2,000 words. Mm. It's just as long as I'm moving forward in the story, I'm happy. Wow, that's cool. Um what is the first thing you do after you've delivered a finished book? Drink champagne. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> uh, who was the first person that you let read your work? My agent. So no one reads my work um, until I have I've finished. Um, no, I'm, I mean, my you know my sister is a writer, but we don't share work in draft with her or, or with each um, each other. So when I have a complete polished edited manuscript then I show it straight to my editor and then I mean I'm sorry to my agent and we might talk about it I might make a few little changes and then she shares it with all of my publishers that's good to know um what is your favorite children's book probably the lion the witch in the wardrobe because it was the very first novel that I read all by myself and because um it's so enchanting um I spent my childhood searching for Narnia. Oh, I think we all did. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favourite writing snack? Um, I, but before I start work every single day, I have a cup of tea and a banana. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, what is the the nicest? Sorry. What is the nicest thing that anyone's ever said about your writing? People say so many lovely things about my writing, it's hard to pick one. But I have to say, um, a reviewer once said that I plotted like the devil and wrote like an angel. Oh, oh that's, that's really good. Yeah, I like it. You know? That's fantastic. And, and it kind of speaks to, like, I believe every book has to have brightness and darkness, joy and sorrow, depths and heights. And so in a way, it kind of speaks to what I believe a good story is. Mm-hmm. And finally, what is one bit of writing advice that stuck with you? Make every word count is, is one of my yeah. absolute rules. My very first creative writing teacher taught that to me when I was, I was still in my teens. And um, I think it's really, really powerful. The quote comes from Elements of Style by Strunk and White and the full quote goes something like this. There should be no unnecessary words in a sentence and no unnecessary sentences in a paragraph. There should be no unnecessary scenes and no unnecessary chapters. Just as there are no unnecessary parts to a machine, there should be no unnecessary parts to a piece of writing. Make every word count. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming in today, Kate. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. And I would be so happy to sit here and talk to you for another for the rest of the day. Thank you so much. Um, So Kate's new novel is The Blue Rose. I believe it's out now. And you can order your copy from booktopia.com.au or from your local bookstore. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.